0: everybody get you some get get you some <laughs> my favorite part is i'm a ho. <laughs> um anyway uh, i am not <laughs> but that is uh the funniest part in the song anyway uh, what's up? What's going on?
1: pump, Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, uh, what, we survived Memorial Day. We headed towards summer. I'm looking forward to, uh, yeah, summer. How about you?
0: Um, yeah, I'm just coming off of, um, being in New Mexico for a week. It was everything. Um, but yeah, it was dope. Me and my team were out there. And so, um, more to come surprises
1: all right cool i look forward to it
0: yeah what do we have on putting you on
1: putting you on so for those of you who don't know this is where we give our takes on recent news and pop culture uh last week commemorated the 100th anniversary of the 1921 tulsa race massacre for those of you don't know the green district of tulsa oklahoma better known as black wall street was a place where a community of Black people found loopholes that afforded them opportunities to develop mom and pop shops and different businesses in a city and state that didn't allow them to buy or sell their goods and services. So in May of 1921, a conversation between a young Black man by the name of Dick Rowland and a young white girl by the name of Sarah Page, an elevator in Tulsa, occurred where she ran out screaming with complaints that she had been assaulted. Uh, Later, she retracted her claims and refuted the idea of pressing charges. However, he was still arrested and the media was calling for his lynching. Uh, This led to a confrontation where black men were essentially guarding the jail to protect his life. And they were confronted by a white mob uh, aligned with the government and the KKK. What happened was a fight broke out, a confrontation. And shots were fired. This led to an angry white mob heading to the Greenwood district to kill folks and burn and loot these businesses. So about 40 acres of prosperous property, along with innocent children um, and adults, were killed and burned. And as a result, there's been years of suffering amidst acts of racial trauma.
0: That's real. Um. Yeah, I'll say that, you know, it's uh, so much of what we talk about now in terms of being able to um, address racial justice is being able to get into the economic justice that needs to happen in order for uh, Black people to just live, have housing, you know. Now you have this community that had been built um, and was thriving, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on all levels, right? Economic, in terms of, like, institutions that were formed. and Education, Yes, and happened. all of black life. And so uh, it's um, a massacre was just that, right? Right. It yeah. was a complete massacre. And actually, Miss um, Viola Fletcher, uh, who was 107, she just testified in Congress and said that, um, you know, She's hundred and seven, and this happened in nineteen twenty one, and she could still smell the burning. She could mm. still see the white mob, right? And so right. that really speaks to the trauma, the psychological trauma that that doesn't go away overnight, right? Uh, and it's
1: passed down through generation. And exactly,
0: generation. exactly, and so she is um, really. Uh, still dealing with it. Uh, she may have rebuilt her house, right? She may have rebuilt, uh, but it's really the the pain and that's now in her memory bank, right? And right. Um, so she, she said she, she was in uh, D.C. for the first time and uh, she talked about the Greenwood District and we now, oh my God, look at Alec, our old intern. Hey! <laughs> Again, we're at uh, Baldwin & Company um, and... Um, it's so nice to see him. Oh my god. Um again the courage that we are uh requiring people to have uh decade after decade and being able to relive and retell the story of uh of trauma and specifically, you know, around uh this district being uh burned down uh is something that we really shouldn't while we applaud it it's not something that we should have to do. Right. And so uh, there's a bill that's happening, a reparations bill, uh, I guess HR 40, uh, that's commissioning a study around reparations. Uh, and it's supposed to help to address um, you know, some of what was lost in Tulsa. And so, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes.
1: Right, definitely. We got to think about the wealth gaps in, in housing and uh, also education, for example. So when you think about the- the united states black people have about three percent of the wealth in the country however they make up 13 percent of its population so one of the main conversations going on right now is what does reparations even look like is that direct payment or what
0: yeah people need money uh <laughs> checks direct right, payments to uh you know black americans uh and um but also you know it's uh it's all of the other stuff it's all of the policies it's all of the you know because as soon as that happens you already know a bunch of ordinances are going to happen a bunch of policies going to happen that's going to stop people in other ways and so we need to be able to um to address everything holistically and you know as you were explaining Uh, you know, the KKK, the government, you know, city government, all these folks were working together. I'm sure at that time it was really difficult to distinguish who was who and, you know, um, you know, who was working with who in the same way that, you know, when we think about immigration now, we know that state local, you know, in certain cities uh, are working with the federal government to allow ice raids to happen. And so again, all of uh, this coordination is uh, being funded. And at that time was also being funded by black dollars. Yep. Right. And so by taxpayer money. Uh, And so, you know, I think we just have to uh, hold our government to the fire um, and, you know, so that we can really start to address um, the economic justice that's needed, uh, given that black people have built a, you know, this country did it for free
1: right.
0: uh, and, uh, you know, so that we yeah. can also properly build on the legacy of Greenwood District. Talking about the legacy of Greenwood just District, uh, Greenwood Bank, um, which is Killer Mike's uh, and a couple of other folks have created this new black bank, uh, which is called Greenwood Bank. Right, know. right. Look, open an account.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Put my money in there, Joe.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's something we all should be looking into, especially uh, when you think about the federal government uh, stripping wealth and opportunity from Black communities. So definitely uh, check out the bank. Um, check out the resources that are uh that are floating throughout social media or whatnot um you know it's amazing a lot of people don't hear about these types of things until they go off to hbcus or when they get into college they start taking african-american history classes so the more uh you know the more essentially this community can grow so keep the conversation flowing i'm also looking forward to um the task forces that are happening around the country so for example california uh, has developed a task force to do some research around what reparations would look like uh, for those who have been discriminated against throughout the throughout the really the turn of the century uh, more specifically black folks so yeah uh, i'm looking forward to what's going on please keep the conversations going on and most importantly get involved um, like, like Mary mentioned is time to hold the government accountable. So we need to be in that face. You feel me? Yeah.
0: The other thing I'll say is that, you know, while, um, Greenwood district was still an example of, you know, it for sure an example of cooperative economics within the black community. Right. right. But also an example of capitalism. And so, uh, and again, we know that, um, If you have it, you can lose it. So uh, anyway, uh, that's that on that. Yeah. Um, All right, let's jump right into it. We have my very good friend uh, and um, recently crowned skipper. Did they give y'all a crown? Uh, anyways, uh-huh. let me tell y'all about Vanessa. Vanessa New Sparrows <laughs> is with us. She's a descendant of farm workers, a mom of twins who I love, Joaquin and Marley, and a social worker with 17 years experience supporting youth individuals, families, in community-based counseling centers. Uh, she believes in holistic and trauma-informed healing practices with every person as an expert of their own lives. She is passionate about addressing systemic inequalities in health access and committed to building a thriving intergenerational healing justice model in Flatbush, Ditmas Park, which, I mean, that's, (laughs) I can't remember how many times just being like, uh, getting off the queue and just, you know, trying to find my way to, to the mansion, um, Anyway, she currently is the director, is the center director for Third Root, a community health uh, center in Brooklyn that is putting social justice at the core of healing. Welcome Vanessa Nessany Sparrows. Thank you, Mary D. I didn't know you were going to read the formal bio. I
2: thought we were going to go with that. I've known
0: you since yay high days. (laughs) Right. We're going to get to that. Hopefully not. Um, But uh, thank you so much for joining us. It is a gift, and I could not think of anyone uh, more amazing to join us uh, on this journey of season two. Uh, I just want to like jump right into it. Uh, and tell us about your earliest uh, memories of community and uh, whose spirit do you bring into the work that you do? Wow, that's a really big one. I think it's really like, you know, when you start out with
2: presencing like farm workers and all of that, I say it's like a few decades of healing just to get to the space of owning that, right? Like coming from communities where folks had to work from the ground up, we don't get to own that. So we get to like really know our narrative. So with that, I would say the spirit of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez informed my work. Um, they're they're the folks that gave me pride to say I come from farm workers and we're the ones that feed y'all. So you're welcome. Um, and I definitely hold the spirit of the indigenous folks from this land um, in my heart who you got to, I heard you got to visit recently.
0: Yes.
2: In, uh, Dine Nation and Hopi Nation which was really formative for me and the, the program that I got to know Mary D through um, back in San Jose State um, many decades ago, uh, we got to travel to indigenous land to really understand, like you can't understand and fight for justice in this country without understanding first this, the narrative of native folks and displacement and genocide that happened there. Um, so that was really uh, a key piece of the spirituality that I carry with me and the community that I carry with me as being a bit like, Lakota, Dakota folks, Navajo Nation folks, and learning the ways of North American Native folks. Um, So those are some of the communities that I would want to presence and call in this space. Um, Of course, like coming from a healing justice framework, we can't even talk about any of that without presencing Audre Lorde and the legacy of Audre Lorde's work. Um, So yeah, those are the folks that I carry with me.
1: Sweet. So you mentioned you know a little something, something about Mary D. How do you know Mary? Um, oh, I heard you wait. became her OG. But yeah, spill that tea.
0: <laughs> oh, she, <laughs> Not too still much. Still this. <laughs> listen,
2: listen. I mean, I didn't know what Salvatrucha meant till I met Mary D. And was like, mm, oh, we got <laughs> we got OG like Salvatrucha folks from LA representing in the Bay. So I know Mary from. Uh, We went to the same undergraduate college, San Jose State University, which if folks didn't know was really a stomping ground where Cesar Chavez and a lot of the farm worker movement um, first interfaced with like college and campus organizing. It's also where Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. The um, the athletics department at San Jose State was a hub for like black activism in track and field. So when we think Mm. of like athletes standing up for you know um, equality and awareness and like Kaepernick taking hits for that. There were people that were doing that like several decades before. Tommy Smith and um, Juan Carlos both got stripped of their medals and mm-hmm. weren't reinstated till like mad decades later. So we went to that college campus and I got to um, go through a social justice program called International and National Voluntary Service Training where we traveled to indigenous communities. We lived in a homeless shelter. We really got like down into nitty gritty community organizing from the ground up. And in my second year, I got to support the cohort coming in. And in comes
0: Mary D. She was my chaperone, chaperone? (laughs) y'all. I mean, I say chaperone because I'm just like, um,
2: I think it was like
0: student teacher, (laughs)
2: facilitator. (laughs) But Mary
0: rolls in with like full camo from head to toe. Like
2: I was like, oh, we are not to be played with
1: know
0: I was very rough around the edges then I just thought I was so tough uh I am indeed not to be played with but uh you know if I had to wear camo
2: <laughs> but I believe like I think your a lot of your analysis came intact like when I knew you then mary you knew what it was and you knew you'd be fighting for this cause for the rest of your life so we we clicked. I was like, yes. this is one. if a bar fight goes down, I'll
0: be like, where's Mary?
2: Where's Mary? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Listen, and then really? we organized with 5th L. Uh, you created an organization. I mean, you know, uh, talk to us about that. That was amazing work.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. So we were like, you know, rabble rousers, but also like deep, you know, golden era hip-hop heads. So if you grew up in the 90s in the West Coast, you were you were with all of the things, the hieroglyphics crew and all the underground hip-hop, and a bunch of us were like... But uh, so mid '90s, how come all the ladies have to be in the music videos? I'm so confused. What just happened? Mm-hmm. So we created an organization called Fifth Element that was really around empowering women's voices in hip hop and um, produced shows that were highlighting uh, B girls like Rockefeller and Aiko and who mm-hmm. went on to create the the film All the Ladies Say. Um, MCs like Medusa and you know um, DJs I'm like Pam the Funk. Pony B, Fly MC, Pam the Funkstress, rest in peace. Rest um, in peace. And that was just a beautiful moment to preserve that culture and to present to folks all over the Bay that there were women at the forefront of hip hop from day one, Right. Um, graffiti writers, and all of that. And so we even had like a day when Pam the Funkstress cooked us brunch. So yes. she held it way. down as a DJ, but she was also like famous, <laughs> famous, famous, famous as a chef. So we got to really. I think before people had that critique that we were reading about, sit with, like, we are community organizers, but we're also cultural producers. Like, everywhere we go, we're producing culture. We're contributing to culture. Like, don't take our cultural capital for granted. So I was so amped to see Black and Brown get down, like, pop off. This is such a lovely uh, incarnation of that spirit.
0: Yes. And, you know, we really... uh I mean, just always so inspired by you uh, forever in a day. I mean, you're a hustler for sure. Anything, you're turning it into a business. I remember movement sound was a big deal uh, that, you know, um, you were really producing these huge events, huge festivals. Uh, and uh, as someone who I tried out for musical theater, got denied, uh, I think, yeah, I was just trying to like, I knew they're that, uh, lost. They're I, lost. I was, right. I was to be a thespian they were like uh ma'am you're too hardcore uh but i was in stage crew you know and so i learned how to you know fix the lights and use do the sound and all of that but that was really uh your business for a long time uh which was producing these shows it's so important that uh these shows are produced by us because we know what needs to happen right absolutely
2: and i would always say this that it was kind of like a dance When people would ask me what I did in the world, like for two decades solid, I've worked in youth services and youth serving organizations in some of the hardest hit communities on both coasts. And I always had my hand in the arts and folks would be like, why do you do that and that? And I realized at some points that it's just like my medicine to like I could stay working in the trenches as long as I had a hand in art and kept myself in close proximity to art artists literally surround myself with like as much art and beauty as I can Yes. um, because we can't just sit in the trenches we can't just be left to sit in the trenches all day like nobody's gonna maintain that way for the rest of their lives that's why we burn out and like leave the field at some point
0: yeah and here's the last thing I want people to know about you, just because I just think it's too good to not mention it. Uh, forever, you also were uh, are a runner and encouraged all of and anyone around you, including myself. I ran my first half marathon with you in Jamaica. Boom. Yes, and um, and you know we would and go smoked out it. there. No, and Meredith smoked it. By the way, oh, oh, on. don't underestimate. <laughs> it. I mean, it was a cute little uh, 15 minute mile. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, it was just, it's so important for you to always bring, build community and bring the people around you into whatever it is you're on, which I love. That's a real organizer.
2: That is. And I think that's one of the things that like at my core has been part of my narrative is that my family went through separation really early. Like we were systems involved kids and I was separated from my parents and knew very young that like your strength is always the people you can pull around you. Like your strength is only, you're only as strong as that you're like closest crew. Um, And that's always been how I moved in the world to be like, oh, my crew is like, my family is who I make it. My family is my blood, of course, but it's also, let me bring along my, my strongest allies and assets. So I'm like, oh, I wanna go run this little distance in Jamaica, I don't know, I heard when you turn 30, you should run a marathon and that was cool. And then um, I ended up running in Jamaica. If folks haven't heard, there's this uh, marathon every year in Jamaica called Jamaica Reggae Marathon. It's along the Seven Mile Beach at Sunrise. Um, some of the nationally ranked Jamaican runners will run and you'll be alongside them. They will smoke you, they will smoke you. But it's fun. And so I got like Mary and a bunch of our crew to come run in Jamaica and that was super sweet. But I'm a retired runner, Mary. I don't, it's not in my mind. Oh,
0: no, it's the knees, huh? It's the knees for me too, sis.
2: It is, it is. So, it's so the that's why I'm in me
0: too. I don't know how into boating now. So the Yes, the skipper. <laughs> uh, I love that.
1: So you're a what a boater, a skipper, um, an organizer, a social worker, and a healer. How do you bring all of these things into your life?
2: It's a good question. Now it's uh, consulting and not working as hard okay. as I used to. That's part of the key to life. Figure out what you're good at and keep leveling it up um, so you have free time. But I think another piece of like, if I were to say all the things that you just said, I would sound like I have ADHD. But for me, it's really like that fundamental thing of saying like, if we are indeed here to challenge capitalism, if we are here indeed to challenge structural inequality. Why am I going to live my life by the capitalist narrative that I need to work until I'm 72 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and then hope there's something left in social security for me to retire. Like, not living like it. that. That's, real. That's not the way for me to live. Um, and so I think it is something that when I presence Audre Lorde, it's something I really believe at my core. Like, capitalism will have people of color believe that we are here to produce labor for people. And that is our only right. value in the world. And that ain't it. All the All the land my grandparents on both sides from the Philippines and Mexico ever farmed was not owned by anyone in my family. And that changed when my my grandfather came from the Philippines. He worked in the fields of Central Valley, scraped by, bought a house, owned it, farmed his own land, lived to be the ripe old age of 90, farming his own land. And that's the way I think we need to live. Like, do not be anywhere producing your capital, your labor on any land you don't own. And on the other side of that, it opens up like freedom, freedom of my time, um, freedom of how I can move in the world. Um, I recently became a homeowner. But this, the sad part of that was before I became a homeowner, I was like, it's literally never going to happen for me in this country. Homeownership in NYC is like, you got to know somebody who knows somebody.
0: Yeah, Pull yeah. yeah. well, a uh, trick, huh? A few tricks. Hey. So (laughs) get yourself. Everybody get (laughs) yourself.
2: So it was this little like pipe dream where I realized. um, So I had grown up on the water because my dad came from the coast in the Philippines and he grew up on the water. Okay. Um, I lived in New York 15 years. And for the majority of that, did not realize New York is literally five islands surrounded by marinas and water. One of the things that's very different about the Northeast is the racial segregation of the waterfront is very real. So the majority of waterfront, like 98% of waterfront property in the Northeast and East Coast is owned by white people. So even just like boating in New York is like a very uh, white recreation. Um, So that was the reason that I lived in New York so long. I didn't realize you could just go out and boat and boat on the waters in New York. So at some point, I kind of like gave up the idea that I would even be a homeowner. And I just was like, you know what? You know what's a home that I can't afford? is a boat. And um, I started getting really into boating like four or five years ago. And now I have a boat. Who will be christened this season. Mary, you got to come to New York for this.
0: Yes. To ride La Chingona. Is it La Chingona? So here's the thing. It was a toss-up. I put this
2: up as a boat to be like La Chingona, which is like spanglish spanglish spanish for badass uh or la sirena so i decided this boat is la sirena because she's small compact and fast um but i'm gunning already married to have like a catamaran that we can cruise Mm. the caribbean in and that'll be la chingona my second boat.
0: Mm, la chingona on la sirena that's what i'm talking (laughs) about I love that. Um, <laughs> you know, we've experienced so many things together V. Um, and it's just, uh, to watch you grow and evolve as a healer, um, you know, it has been amazing. You're a cancer survivor and, uh, you're now the director of third Root, um, which, you know, w- w- would always, we would always pass it on the way to the queue. And uh, it was like, oh yeah, that's where they do the acupuncture. Oh yeah, that's where they do the yoga, you know? Um, But I'm just, you know, I remember during that time, uh, when, uh, you were working on your healing, you know, so many things like the fungal, uh, the antifungal diet and all these, these things kind of came into play. Why is it so important for you to challenge the concept of healing, uh, and healing yourself and healing others, and then specifically healthcare in the United States?
2: Yeah, that's a big, deep question. It's not something that I usually hold at the forefront. I think it's something that I'm still like healing around the narrative that I did experience cancer in my own body. And um, so one of the things I think of is if we think of like social inequity and we think of like the social determinants of health. If one were just to look at the numbers and be like, wow, black and brown people disproportionately die and die early of preventable diseases, you'd really have to have a lot of blinders on to really think something is happening in the healthcare system that's okay. So if we could just say like, even if we don't know what it is, something inequitable is happening, then you could kind of start to see like, why one would question all the things that are in the like American US health narrative. So just for context, um, US medicine as its practice has only been like licensed and regulated for 300 years. Chinese medicine, two to three thousand years old. Ayurvedic medicine from India, three to five thousand years old. Herbal medicine, infinity, like for all human existence, there's been herbal medicine. And so the nature of American medical practice has always been rooted in capitalism, which is always rooted in white supremacy. And so I think of like my own family who came to the US, um, some legally, some not, picked fruit often ate processed food, often couldn't afford like the fresh produce and whatnot that they picked. And we grew up on a steady diet of like ramen noodles, rice, soda, junk, all these things. Spam. And I got to see spam. Spam is a damn near delicacy in the Philippines. Yeah. So I got to see like my elders grow up with really adverse health. And it was just like, oh, I could either be like, this is just the way it is. Or there's a, like a big question mark for me. So the question mark has always been around like, who gets to determine what is food? In the United States, it's a food and drug administration. So the same people who regulate pharmaceuticals get to decide what's food and who gets to decide what food goes to who. That's all like, you know, people doing research on that, like why there's liquor stores and McDonald's in every black and brown neighborhood versus like organic produce. Right. Um, and also, I think the other thing if folks are really digging into this now is like, who's disproportionately affected by toxic stress? So women of color in the United States are disproportionately affected by toxic stress, microaggressions, um, you know, single motherhood, like all the things. So I think even my body can be...
0: All the things. We said all the
2: things. All the things. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, well, if I think about my own body, I was like, yeah, I was part of that. Um, I was part of toxic work culture. I was part of grind culture. I thought I really was going to work 60 hours a week and finish grad school and dedicate my life to a career. And my body just finally was like, no, you're gonna sit down and we're gonna be debilitated for a little bit. But I believe that was like the worst year of my life also became the first year of my life. I really understood what I needed to do to heal my body. So coming full circle to Third Root Community Health Center. I happened to live in a neighborhood where the first worker owned holistic healthcare co-op was started in Brooklyn. Um it's twelve, going on thirteen years now. and so when it when it started, I was really excited. It was like black and brown healers, folks who believed in cooperative ownership, folks who practice Chinese medicine and holistic health modalities. And I started as a volunteer, and I would you know work there and just love the center. Um, a few years in is when I became very ill and was diagnosed with cancer, and literally the center. Folks, like friends, like Rupa, like Julia, these folks that were around the founding of the center were like, hold on, you're sick, like we got you. They would literally like walk to my house and give provide acupuncture, provide Reiki and all these things that really, it was like, I knew what it felt like in my body to be held by community and I, I could completely let go and trust that process. And it became really meaningful for me to like, when the center Was in a crisis so you can imagine the last year of the pandemic most small businesses went through some really tough times um, to come on board and say like nope we're gonna steer the ship through (laughs) this is not the end for us um so what we have been doing is really transforming um, third group community health center into a space that's both responsive to the needs of the community during a pandemic and also safely reopening and providing in-person services um not not regardless of but you know, the CDC is saying one thing, New York City is saying another thing. We're like, what we're saying is actually best for folks is X, Y, and Z. So we've continued um, since the fall to provide massage, acupuncture, yoga, and workshops. Um, now we're doing that bi-coastally because, you know, a lot of folks have left New York. Mm. A lot of people have had to move. And so now we have people in our community from both coasts as providers, as participants. Um and our growing edge now is to say, not just locally for Flatbush in Brooklyn, but nationally, what does it mean to be a healing justice business? What does healing justice mean as a business model? And so for third group, we're saying what that means is in any community where you're using the language of healing justice, the ownership has to be majority owned by the folks that are most impacted by health disparities in any zip code. So if you're using healing justice language and you're 100% white ownership in a community that has significant black and brown people, we're going to need to talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to be healing justice is that folks that are most impacted are the ones making decisions, are the ones saying what it means to heal, are the ones deciding what modalities are offered. Um, And then what are the ways that we're building an access for folks that are most impacted? Like not everybody can afford yoga and massage. So we have um, what we call the collective care fund. And folks can apply and get scholarships for our services. Um, And, you know, primarily like New York City folks, because for in-person, that would be the easiest. But anywhere in the country, if you want to participate in yoga and workshops and you're in need, you can apply and we'll do what we can do.
0: Oh,
1: I'm good. Go ahead, Mary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She already asked. She answered my question. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah. Much of your life has really been dedicated to the practice of freedom, liberation. Um, What are the next big places where the work is needed to get us, uh, you know, closer to this place of where we're practicing freedom and where we're really living uh, what we envision as liberation?
2: That is such a big question. I'm going to kind of talk off the cuff because I feel like this is like, it's not like a playbook. We're actually seeing this happen in real time. This is in real time, y'all. So a year ago, this is a you know almost like a year to the week that we started to see some of the biggest uprisings in our lifetime in the United States, and so it really was you know on the, the heels of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder, folks getting to really critical mass, um, and I think a lot of folks are you know we're sitting with like why did it pop off the way it did? Like one, we were in a lockdown. Two, we're in a global health crisis that none of us have ever seen. Um, And so I think um, I'm presencing that to answer this question. I think part of it is people started to really say, if we want to see the ending of the killing of black and brown bodies, we need to abolish police like in a real way in our lifetime. And what does that actually mean? And so as a social worker, as a person who's trained to support people's health needs, one of the things that I've been like keenly aware of the start of my organizing was around um, October 22nd coalition in the Bay area to say like, police brutality is a thing. People get murdered at the hands of the police all the time. A lot of the times, it's because there's a mental health crisis and police are the first to respond to it. So I've been like really curious when people say abolish the police, it's like, well, what happens in its place? And I think there are cities right now, especially Minneapolis, where folks are at the forefront of saying, like, if it's gonna happen, here's how it happens redirecting funds from police departments into local communities, um, starting to resource things communities actually need, which is Places like Third Root, places that offer true healing spaces for folks, community health, community mental health, um, alternatives to calling the police, um, transformative justice and all that. So when I think of like what it takes to get us closer to true liberation, I think one thing is bet on black everything all the time. (laughs) We're going to be in a midterm election cycle, like fund black voting organizations, fund Georgia, fund Florida, fund places whose like democracy is under threat right now even if you have a little coin to give. Um,
0: Let me, and also, can I stop you right there? I'm sorry. Why bet black all the time, right? As a Filipina, as a Mexican, like, and, and just for folks who uh, oftentimes, you know, we're pinned against each other. And that's a lot of the work that we do at the Black and Brown Get Down is just really expand our understanding around uh, why bet black all the time. Why can I say that as a Filipino and Mexican? Like, is that or like no, 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 no. just my community? Increase
2: our understanding of it. Oh, no, yeah. I think yeah. It's what I was saying about, so for Third Root to be a healing justice business model, the people most impacted by anything have to be the head of all decision-making, always. And if we talk about allyship, it means I have to literally be comfortable in my skin taking direction from people who may not look like me, who I trust have a better bird's eye view of what's happening. So in this political climate, I would say... Um, You know, well, Bet Black all the time is about like what's happening right now, but it's really about understanding that who's been at the forefront of defining and fighting for social justice for all people has always been led by the most disenfranchised folks, not just black folks, but like black trans women led the Stonewall rebellion that is leading to Pride Month right now. Yeah. That was, like, black trans folks. So not just black, but, like, black trans folks. And so when we think about people that are fighting to abolish police now, a lot of black trans-led organizations in the South especially have been leading that charge way before last year. It's been, like, yeah. decades in the making. Um, and when you think about, like, the Democratic Party, the way they've leveraged seeking power has often been to rely on the labor of black women But once Mm -hmm. folks are in office, not be accountable to those same folks. So I really admire what like Stacey Abrams has built and what folks are like literally building on the ground to say like the South was never truly Republican. That was just decades of voter suppression. And so if we're going to say there's going to be like liberatory practices in the United States, we have to know that we're putting our money down in defending black communities' right to vote and feel protected doing that and funding people that are actually looking to create alternatives to policing now.
0: I love that. Um, And even with
2: my little coin, can I tell you, my son decided he wanted to spend $200 of his birthday money to Stacey Abrams' campaign because he was like, wait, what? Like, People may actually vote for Donald Trump. So my kids hear my politics all day. And then when they realize that there's actually a real viable option for white supremacy, it doesn't make sense in their reality. They're like why would this person who's obviously like, to their understanding of the world, the villain from all the reality I know, why would people vote for him again? I was like, you know, this is what it is. It's very complicated. My son wanted to give all his birthday money. I said, okay, I love you. Stacey Abrams don't need all your birthday money. So what he did instead was he found a bunch of friends who were willing to give money, and he raised $200 to give to Stacey Abrams' campaign. And I'm like, if my... You know, seven now, eight year old can understand that we can all put a little coin. I know you got five on it. Like, yeah. let's just all put our little money together
0: um, to support these really, really pivotal tipping points right now. Yep, I love that, uh, because while it's the the healing of ourselves, it's also about the political action. And then it's also about how we leverage um, the elements, Right, you have a very strong relationship with water. Um, you have your boat now. What's the connection to the water, and why? And, and just the elements, and why is it important? And to you, and why should it be important to us?
2: Oh man, I know you're gonna have me get all like metaphysical on it. Yes,
0: let's go. <laughs>
2: I do want to put out the invite though that if y'all both of you ever want to come to New York, we could totally have a black and brown get down from the water. Like, yes.
0: I'm
2: with it. Podcast from the water. Um, all
1: I needed was an invitation.
2: There you go. The invitation is there. (laughs) Um, I would say there's. Vaxed and waxed.
1: We vaccinated for sure.
2: Very D. Listen, (laughs) I need that bumper sticker. Um, I would say it's a few things. You know, when um, I was mentioning, like, having gone through a cancer journey, I got really into understanding, like, detoxing in the body. And so Mm -hmm. there is, like, very real evidence that we feel um, less toxicity in our bodies when we're in. Elements of nature, whatever calls to you. Some people, it's forests, hiking. Uh, for me, it's always been being in close proximity to the ocean at the coast. And um, part of that is it's a giant body of saltwater, and saltwater is naturally detoxing for the body. Mm. Um, so I think it's like there's always been that attraction for me. The other thing is when you think about communities who've um, evolved near the water, so like people, islander people, all Pacific Islander folks, Caribbean island folks have creation stories where they understand themselves as deeply connected to the cycles of nature in the water. And it was like, partially just you live somewhere for a few thousand years, you understand the cycles of something. And it's also partially that you understand like, your survival is not disconnected from any element around you, like people, nature, or otherwise. And so there's a way that like, when you you truly understand that, embody that, you can see like, very clearly, not even like, Uh, metaphorically, that the way humans have interacted with the natural environment is dead-ass destructive, is a product of capitalism, is a product of white supremacy. Um, And I think that it's most clear when you're on the water that you can see that. So I took my kids to a shore cleanup in Brooklyn. And, you know, in Brooklyn, one of the things I've noticed in a place like New York City is people litter, like all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I know, Mary, you spend a lot of time in the Bay and you're in the South now. I don't actually know where you're from. So are you in the Bay too?
1: Yeah, I'm in the Bay. I'm currently in the Bay.
2: Okay, so yeah, in the Bay, like you would never see people dead ass just throw trash on the floor yeah, like that. that.
1: Nah, wack. nah, nah. Hell no, nah. we don't do that.
2: And people uh, would do that. We
1: recycle. <laughs> people recycle,
2: but like if yeah. you if you threw trash on the ground, somebody in the Bay would be like, "Hey, you dropped something."
1: Right? Yeah, for sure. Come back
2: and get that. And if you ignored it, they'd be like, "Oh, there's something."
0: Well, like we are well trained. Right. Even out when there. you
1: drop your trash, like, no, hold on, that's recycle or that's you should put that. in The compost. It's always that's next level. We're not there (laughs) yet.
0: When I first moved to New Orleans, it was given. uh, (laughs) It was given something different. So Uh. in New York, you don't see that. You see people literally just like be like, "Oh,
2: trash floor," Mm. and I'd be like, "What is this about?" I used to think it's about for generations. People don't own their property. People are renters, Mm. and so there's not a level of ownership. I think there's also something Mm. cultural in the Bay. There's a twelve hundred dollar ticket. If you are caught throwing trash from your car, and I knew this because my dad nearly whooped my behind. I threw something out the car window, and he was like, let me tell you, for $1,200, I will whoop your behind. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, we don't do that. So my son, you know, we're going down the street in Flatbush, and he dropped a candy wrapper. And I was like, excuse me. He's like, everybody does that. And so I raised my kids in sweat lodge, and I had to sit there and be like, when we're in a sweat lodge, and we are praying to Mother Earth, what do you think we're praying to? And he was like, the earth. And I was like, what are you standing on right now? So I was like, mm. just telling him in a like child-friendly level that like we are in relationship to something. You don't disrespect that thing. And that is something you have to teach mm. and learn and embody. Um, so I take to them to the shore cleanup in some of the waters. So when you fly into JFK, you see all this water. And that's a protected bay. It's called Jamaica Bay. And you look up the tide line. So the tide is in a circular motion. It's in a 28-day cycle with the moon at all times. It goes up and down six feet everywhere in the world at a specific time. Uh and it, it changes in a 28-day cycle. So the, the six yes, feet for the water, water, water goes knowledge. Up, it goes down. What it deposits when it goes up is all the litter and trash mm. that we put directly into the waterway. And I take my kids and they were like What is this multicolored stripe you can see around the entire bay? That is the plastic trash that people put into New York City streets that gets washed directly into the ocean. So everywhere where there's a dense urban population close to the ocean, you will have a six foot line of plastic around the ocean. And that's what we're doing to the ocean like every day. And so it was like us being there sweating this whole day and like having bags and bags and mounds and mounds of trash and literally at the end of the day being like, we literally covered a hundred feet of the bay, like in Jamaica Bay. (laughs) We didn't put a dent in it, but it is learning to be like, we have to be in right relationship. And when you get in the water and you see like the beauty of it and feel that life-changing impact of like being in relationship and then actually see what humans are doing, like you'll come back with like a deeper level of understanding of like why I'm committed to do this work every day, why I'm gonna raise my kids this way, but also raising like all my friends with kids, like your children need to know how to swim. We need to get on the water, <laughs> they need to be learning these things. um, and I think that's part of my ceremony, that's part of the healing that I carry forward in me based on like the people that I come from. my people came from the coasts of Mexico and the Philippines. they came from. Even the parts that have been cut off because of the colonial legacy, like we still have that in our blood, that we came from reverence for the ocean and reverence. Yeah,
0: my yeah.
1: Sweet. All of it. And I just say, I just really love the fact that you talked about um, how valuable and sacred water and the earth are, especially when you start thinking about like purification, protection, healing, or whatnot. So shout out to you for that.
2: Absolutely. It's everywhere. Like the whole Dakota Access Pipeline was like, those are water protectors. Those are Native people everywhere know that they are here to protect these resources. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And that's the real duty, right, Uh, that we have uh, to protect um, and to be in relationship with uh, Mother Earth. Um, Well, I know that we're going to you're going to come back for Rising Rituals. So we're going to stop for a second and uh, we're going to bring you back. See Beautiful. you in a second. <laughs> um. All right. And on the juice, we're going to be talking about Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka is just such a queen, such a, I don't even know how to uh, describe who she is other than she's ranked number one in uh, tennis. Uh, I think she really, um, you know, I think once she won and beat a uh, Serena, um, we knew that, you know, she was the, you know, I got now and next. In mm-hmm. addition to that, um, throughout one of, I think it was like the U S open or something. She, and during the uprisings last year, she completely, uh, just did what a Muhammad Ali would do, uh, what LeBron is doing in, uh, in LA and California, which is really, you know, step in, and be a voice and amplify what people are organizing around, right? Um, we saw her uh, in her, I think it was like her bead. She had on braids and beads, uh, like silence is violent. She was wearing masks, uh, Breonna Taylor masks, George Floyd. Uh, so she's just, you know, really a beast and uh, such a leader and uh, moves with such grace. Um, so, you know, here we go. Uh yeah. she is um you know, smart as hell and knows and understands herself. I think it's one of the things I love about, um, athletes is that athletes are really in tune with their body in a different way. Uh, we know because, you know, uh, not just the physical kind of joints and, and, you know, like pains and things that they would feel, but also, you know, their mental health. Uh, we saw, um, my boy beast mode talk to me, uh, Marshawn, Marshawn yeah, Marshawn came and was like,
1: um, "I'm just here so I won't get fired." Straight up, yes, I gotta protect. And guess me. what?
0: I gotta look after what he said. Uh, your chicken and your mental, yeah, your yeah,
1: chicken. Get your chicken. Get
0: your chicken <laughs> and look at you. Make sure you your mentals are good.
1: Yeah, and sure. he,
0: you know, so Marshawn gave the call and he said that's what you know people should be doing. And Naomi comes after and says like, you know what? I actually can't do this press conference. I am going to sit this one out. So she sat it out. Um, people went ham on this young Black woman, Naomi. I think she got a Haitian father, a Japanese mother, and they went ham on her for basically not going to the press conference. She was fined $15,000. And, um, And then, you know, you already know once things start getting amplified on social media in the uh, Pierre or what's the guys, uh, the white British man. I can't remember what his name is, but bro was like, she's using mental health as a um, she's using mental health as a uh, excuse. Um, It was then like, you know, things just started snowballing at that point. uh, She's just like, you know what? I'm about to show you something. And uh, she was like, man, like in a very, in the most graceful way, uh, goes on to pin a letter and both to the U.S. Open. Uh, or was it the U.S. Open? I can't uh, remember. It's pretty much you know all the parties
1: about. involved with, with, with tennis, but also the media outlets for sports.
0: Yeah. And she basically says to them, like, "Man, I'm gonna look after myself. Like, I'm clear that I'm an introvert. I'm clear that I have anxiety. I've actually struggled with, um, you know, depression and, you know, it's whack that she even has to say this and, and like, just share it in public in this way. Uh, but you know what? to not distract anyone, the fact that I wanted to take care of myself and my mental health and not go to this press conference, uh, I'm going to just let you have all of it. Because guess what? I am who I am. And I can come back. I'm number one. Let's not forget that. Right. Uh, and I'm going to come back and win the next US Open. Uh, but like, just leave me alone. And my favorite thing, she was like, I'll see you when I see you. Because yes. I think like she made closing. fifty-five million last year. Oh, no, she
1: made over seventy million last year from like wild. endorsements and her salary as a tennis player. Like, yeah, I think what?
0: Nike came back and was like, "Oh, let's double down," and like, mm-hmm. you know, because that's just like leadership. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, man, you're not about to play with me. You're not about to toy with me. Like I said, I wasn't feeling good. The right. fuck. <laughs> so uh, it's really you know about the mental health. It's really about the self-care, the self-love. Now, that is some self-care. Yeah, that is some sure. self-love to say, like, I am on the biggest stage, the worldwide stage. But you know what? I'm not going to put my life at risk for y'all. Like, right. it's it's right now I need to take care of me. And so I'm just so proud of her. You know, salute to the queen. It's, um, she's beautiful. She's young. She's 23. Uh, so I just hope she takes good care of herself and I've seen, you know, all kind of people reach out. Will Smith had a letter for her. Um, yeah, Steph just Curry. good for her.
1: Just all folks, all the folks. So, yeah.
0: And that's what it looks like to say, give it all up, mm-hmm. you know?
1: And we've seen this like in basketball as well. Like say a uh, shout out to Kyrie Irving, who also took a stance to just say, Hey, I got to focus on me. I don't want to talk to the media. And then, you know, how many times do we see the media spins things? Like you mentioned earlier, like they just spin, spin, and then it starts spinning out of control. And then, you know, you're left to try to pick up the pieces and be on this because you're on this platform. And, yeah, you're just streaming up shit's Creek because the media has switched up your words or whatnot. So shout out to her for taking the time to Just get herself together, which I think is something we can. And talking
0: about bucking the system. She's like, man, like, white man, this job, fuck your job. Keep your job. Yeah, for (laughs) real. (laughs) real, And she was like, I'm out.
1: She put them deuces up. She was like, I'm out. But I think it's also a testament to you, you got these people in these places. So that you know, they they break the scene, they're doing their thing, whatever. And then you put them in front of cameras and, and microphones, and you just expect them to. I guess, perform like way that they performed on the court or, you know, the field, what have you as the same way that they would in front of these cameras. And you you don't provide them the necessary resources for, I don't know, coaching, coaching them up on what to say, when to take a break, Uh, the resources like, hey, here's some, here's some, uh, some resources for Mental health. Here's for advocacy throughout the streets of what's going on in in social media. Like, these are questions that people are consistently throwing at them, and they're like, yo, like, what the fuck do I do? Essentially, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have been stepping up different people who have app companies and mm-hmm. um, and who ha- are really invested in mental health have actually taken a stance and saying, like, they're going to not only pay her fines, but any other player that wants to step, take a step back. Yeah, um, I just think it's important. You know, it was the French Open, excuse me, not the U.S. Open. Um, but, yeah, I just think that's really honorable of. um You know of her honoring herself Uh, and you know it's just it's whack that like we have to get to this place where people um, question you if you're trying to take care of yourself and that's really the lack of compassion that we have around this issue. No, you should work through it. And, right, it's probably some of the same issues we have around um, maternal health, specifically for black women, right, which is like, oh, she could take the pain. She can take the – she don't, you know, she don't need the medicine. She don't need the treatment. Uh, And then there you go, these numbers that say basically, you know – there's a high likelihood if you're a black woman and pregnant and going through that process that you're not going to receive the proper care that you you know higher rates in infant mortality in you know um mothers just having complications I can't tell you how many of friends that I had who, you know, will say the same thing that, you know, they've had all these complications or just really awful experiences during their pregnancy process. Anyway, that's that on that.
1: Or, or, or are condemned for even mentioning it. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the part that kills me. We live in a society where it's like, Oh, be your true self. And, and uh, you know, if you're not feeling something, speak on it, but the minute you do, you are condemned. Not yeah. set up for success, condemned, not yeah. supported, none of that, condemned. So, yeah. yeah.
0: And she's showing us this young queen is that you could condemn me, me all you want, but guess I what? It. I actually don't even like, you don't own me, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm actually going to operate without all this stuff right. because I'm good right. and you know everybody can't make that choice but she essentially you know the power to refuse uh, participation is such a huge you know kind of muscle that she flexed uh, so anyway salute mamacita
1: and I really love the way she closed it I see you when I see you like I what? I see you when I see like, you I got the power you waiting on me I'm gonna be yeah. back but I'm gonna take care of myself so yeah for sure
0: Yep. So, um, yeah. All right. And uh, now on to the rising ritual. We have Vanessa back with Joaquin and Marley. Nice to see y'all. Hey.
2: Hey, Marley's coming in upside down.
1: What are we doing? Yes. I'm just loving the personality right now.
2: Yeah. (laughs) The talk (laughs) us through it all right we're going to talk about a ritual that we practice as a family and you know we were, i was talking about like indigenous practice a little earlier especially in relation to water and so one of the things i like to think about is like whenever there's a rupture we need to have tools to make something whole again um and i think especially as parents we can get caught up in being like i'm right i'm the parent i'm the one in control um and so i am both a single mom and a mom of twins and what my children would like to do is say, you know, when they're in disagreement with what, something I say, they would say, I know, let's put it up to a vote. And I would say, no, no, I could do simple math. I know you outnumber me. We're not big. <laughs> um, we've started to practice something that exists in most indigenous communities around the world, which is talking circle. And the rules of talking circle can vary from place to place, but they generally include several components. One is, we all come to the circle with our best intentions and assume the best intentions from everyone else. And two is we agree to listen to what other people say without judgment. And three, we agree to having an object. And we say, this object is sacred. You want to show what object we have?
0: See, show that I found
2: this the beach. B.
1: No, you it. didn't. You got it from the airplane on the ride home.
2: Either way, nice. we all decide what the sacred object is. And whoever holds the sacred object gets to have the floor and gets to have everyone listen to them. So we're going to just show a practice of how we work. Love it.
1: Cool.
2: I'm going to say my name and something that I'm feeling, and then I'll, we'll pass it and everybody will take a turn, okay? All right, my name is Vanessa. Something I'm feeling is really grateful that my kids are so awesome and willing to be in listening space with me and in, in talking space. Okay, I'm going to pass it to you. Uh, my name is Joaquin, and I'm actually kind of feeling bored. Bored? Okay, that's an okay thing to feel. My name's Marley, and I feel like I, have, I need to run around the house three times. Oh, you got <laughs> a lot of energy. That's very honest.
1: Let it out.
2: There you go. You guys, what are some times that we use talking circle that's helpful?
0: Uh, well, usually when
2: someone's upset or when people are arguing about something. Yeah, when people are upset or arguing. And what makes Talking Circle helpful, then? Oh, like, it makes it helpful, so, like, no one talks over anyone. And also the
1: fact to make people forget that they're talking in an unusual place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're talking in a, Yeah, it's not usual that we sit down together and talk.
1: No, it's not usual that
2: <laughs> two times we had a whole chat in the bathroom. <laughs> we did have whole chats in the bathroom. That did happen. You're putting a whole chats in the bathroom. Now. So we're going to do an imaginary talking circle and pass it to Mary,
0: and then you can pass it and say how you're feeling. Okay, I have the shell in my hand. I'm Mary, and uh, I am missing Marley Joaquin. You guys got so big. Uh, You all look so tall, and I can't wait to come to New York and uh, say hello and get some hugs. We're not actually
2: in New York.
0: Yeah, Newburgh's in New York. Sorry, son.
2: Well, it's not (laughs) in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. It's not in Brooklyn. It's not Brooklyn. Okay, there to Joe.
1: All right, thank you. I am holding the shell. My name is Joseph, and I am feeling very joyful and grateful that I get to connect with you all and learn so much from your mom. So thank you for sharing her for this tidbit.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Vanessa. We are very, very grateful for you and uh look forward to uh, sharing this ritual with uh, everyone on our pod.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the beautiful work you both do.
1: Real quick, where can we find you? On the net? On social media? What's up?
2: So you can find me on, um, so to find the work of Third Root Community Health Center, you go to thirdroot.org. We also have our application open for the collective care fund. If you are in need of support, you can apply there. And, you know, Facebook, Vanessa Nesperos, Instagram, Venus underscore loves. And, um, and you can also find La Sirena NYC for the boat.
0: Oh, Sweet. she has Precited. her Instagram. Yes, for hey. La Sirena. It's
2: La Sirena? L-A-Sirena.nyc.
0: Oh, that's what's up. All right. Blessed. She's docked where? So the people can say what's up.
2: Oh, in City Island. So in the Bronx, there is a big island surrounded by marinas in the Bronx it's lit. Yes, yeah, all the BX. <laughs> right. And do all, all the things there. Yeah. Is it
0: by La Marina restaurant? No. That she used to go years ago. I don't know if it does.
2: Anymore.
0: Oh, in City Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a bunch of food restaurants
2: out there. Yep. We'll mm-hmm. have to make a whole trip when you come up.
0: Yep. All right. Love you, all my right. girl. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye so thank you everyone for listening to the black and brown get down subscribe and download on apple pod and spotify or wherever you get your podcasts please leave us a review and enjoy uh the episode slide in our dms if you have any questions for us and follow us on instagram at the black and brown get down love y'all peace